Good afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rocks Radio Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's episode, spinning computers, chili Mars, and burning fingernails. And also joining us is Charlie Emmerich and Jesse Porter from the Berkeley Science Review. In addition, you can find out how much the Earth weighs. Plus, this week's Grokotron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. Right here on Berkeley Groks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Man, that's a really chilly uh, winter <laughs> here, huh? You know, uh, you know, it keeps getting uh, chillier and chillier, and then you, you, you bear through it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, what's the best way for you to chill out, Charles? Uh, I think I go into a coma. Okay, you don't soak yourself in uh, liquid sodium? I, I haven't, but I'll give it a try. About 660 degrees, actually. Oh, really? That's how uh, nuclear reactors do it. Well, it's been a long time since I've been in a nuclear reactor, but... <laughs> Turns out, uh, sodium and potassium, of course, are actually metals. Mm-hmm. And that same concept uh, has now been proposed to cool down uh, computer chips. Oh, okay. So, uh, as you realize, uh, probably, you know, with an uh, increasing number of transistors on these computer chips, it gets hotter and hotter because mm-hmm. you know, there's more resistance, right. as there's more circuits. Most chips are now cooled directly by air, uh, but if you take the, uh, I guess, top-of-the-line G5 from the Mac, yeah. it's actually cooled with water. Right, it's so a microfluidic devices, right? But a, a company in Texas, uh, Nanocoolers, has suggested using a liquid metal, uh, actually a mixture of gallium and indium with a little bit of tin. Mm. And apparently this metal is uh, a liquid even at 7 degrees centigrade. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Instead of using the water, what they have is a pump driven by electromagnetic coils. So there's actually no moving parts for this pump, which is really nice. The uh, liquid metal conducts a lot better than the right. water, so it's even faster. And it's you know relatively non-toxic. Right, right. No, that makes sense because it's highly conductive. It'll take the heat and uh, distribute it much more efficiently, I think. Right. And, of course, the the electrical pumping, because it's a metal, can be moved around quite quickly, right? Yeah. So uh, this is one of the ideas that they're thinking about as uh, chips get hotter and hotter. Uh Uh, Hopefully we won't get to that point, but, you know. They're as hot as they can get right now. (laughs) (laughs) Can't get much hotter than the Pentium. (laughs) Yeah. They got toasted, right? (laughs) Yeah, I remember those commercials, yeah. seeing those buddies getting toasted. Yeah. <laughs> they were good commercials. So, uh, you know, this is an interesting development. There's hope that we can still get faster and faster computers uh, at Walmart, I guess. I, you know, I, I can't imagine them being any faster for what I could possibly use it for. You know, it deletes as quickly as I need it to, so. <laughs> <laughs> you don't use it to uh, toast your uh, bread? <laughs> I haven't tried it recently. Maybe make an omelet. Yeah. All right, so this is a very nice article in Technology Review. All right, so Frank, how often do you clip your uh, fingernails? Does that include my fingers? (laughs) 
I haven't tried. Uh, have you tried clipping your fingers? Yeah, it goes back. Oh, really? You must be like a starfish. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> I adapt. What about your head? Can you cut that off? Uh, that part's a little tough. <laughs> well, this is actually interesting because researchers are actually trying to encode information on the fingernails. Wow, encode information? Like with uh, DNA chips or something? Well, actually they have like a little, it's kind of like a laser thing, which basically burns uh, uh, short pulses of infrared light, which burn uh, little microdots onto your fingernail. Oh, wow. So it's basically uh, putting in, like uh, embedded information right on the surface. Right, right. And apparently these researchers think they can accommodate something like 800 kilobytes of data onto your fingernail. So it provides enough information for, like, you know, basic identity type information. It's kind of an interesting uh, development. It's developed by Yoshio Hayasaki of the University of Tokushima and colleagues. And uh, it's a little tricky because apparently, you know, the fingernail has to be very still when they're burning it. And, of uh -huh. course, reading it is a bit of an issue. Right. So <laughs> it, it seems like a risky procedure. You might actually lose a finger with that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think they can control the uh, the emissions quite well. M the more uh, important issue is just that uh, it seems like this information can be very easily um, forged, and also uh, you'd have to reburn it every six months or so as your fingernail grows out. Right. Well, I think a more uh, probably practical application, which is actually um, entering the mainstream, is actually uh, laser encoding of fruits. Oh, okay. So it turns out like a lot of um, and when you just go to your supermarket and buy your apples, there's usually a little plastic sticker on there, and it doesn't taste very good when you uh, <laughs> try to chew it. Oh, I like paper. but <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it turns out they're actually laser encoding a, a lot of fruits these days oh. you know, with the USDA uh, oh. and the uh, country of origin and the quality of well, it. Well, the USDA doesn't taste very good either. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, it's fascinating stuff. They actually suggest that it might be more useful for uh, surreptitious uh, distribution of information, like spies might want to use it mm. to carry information around. So, very interesting uh, work. It was published in a recent edition of Optical Express. So, Charles, do you think you're originally from Mars? Uh, well, I guess so, and women are from Venus, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose so. I don't seem to fit in on Earth really well. <laughs> Me neither. It turns out that some evidence suggests that life uh, may have originate from Mars or jump from planet to planet, actually. Right, it's sort of the, what's, panspermia <laughs> hypothesis. Right, uh, based on evidence of these uh, Nacolite meteorites uh, that were found in El Nacla in uh, Egypt. Right. Uh, but um, I guess recent analysis of the rocks by Caltech researchers suggests that Mars has actually been a deep freeze for the past 4 billion years. So that means um, if there was life on Mars, it could have, it was only there during the first half a billion of its existence. Hmm. The way they uh, they found out the average age of this of these rocks was uh, by the argon content that's left within them, and so it turns out that the um, argon can diffuse out of uh, rocks that over time, and that's a temperature dependent uh, effect here. So I guess the hotter air, the faster argon will uh, leak out. But the co the argon content in these rocks can suggest that the average temperature of the uh, Mars has been about 69 degrees below zero for the past uh, 4 billion years. So definitely could not have supported life, at least at the temperatures we know of. At least it now shows uh, how cold it's been there for uh, a while, I guess. So pack a jacket when you go. Anyways, this is very interesting work carried out, and it's reported in a recent edition of Science. <laughs> Right. 
right. And uh, finally, how's your quantum computer working out? Give me my cup of coffee. <laughs> it hasn't given me any uh, interesting results yet. There's all that source of brownian motion in there, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I thought I'd get the caffeine molecules to, you know, um, couple and uh, do some sort of quantum thing, but kind of hard, you know. There, well, it's the NutraSweet, I think. That's, uh, <laughs> if you add sugar, it does it a lot better. So actually, uh, again, it's a very fascinating issue. Quantum computing, a lot of scientists are looking at trying to develop these types of uh, computing devices. Right. And which basically relies on the fact that, you know, uh, various atoms and uh, such can line <clears throat> with their spins, either in up or down spin state. Right. But they can also access uh, sort of in-between states, right? A superposition right. of the two. Right. So which allows them to go through many more computations right. than possible. So you're basically accessing all possible states at the same time. Right. But the, the tough part, of course, is how do you actually put information into this thing and read it out? And a group of researchers led by Hans Andreas Engel and Daniel Loss of the University of Basel in Switzerland have now explained how a spin parity meter could work. Wow. And this apparently is, uh, could be used uh, in future my compu quantum computing devices. Uh-huh. And so so their theory is instead of feeding information in one end of this quantum computer and then trying to read it out, what they would actually do is sort of read the information like ripples in a pond and look at sort of the coupling of spin states between, say, paired uh, paired uh, spins, and this would allow them to access that information. It's pretty, uh, pretty nifty. I, I mean, I guess one of the uh, issues with these quantum computers is how do you decouple uh, different states from each other and uh, measure it? So their idea is that uh, you really wouldn't have to. You just sort of uh, measure sort of the network effect of whatever perturbations you're doing, uh -huh. and that would give you an idea of what the computation is uh, taking place. Wow. So I, I guess if consciousness actually emerges from uh, quantum effects, then maybe our brain is just one big, large uh, quantum computer then. Uh, I have, uh, at least I would hope that it's any kind of computer, because I don't think it's processing efficiently for me. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's just burning. <laughs> Uh, well, you need more cooling, I think. Uh, so this is actually very fascinating work, and uh, it's just theoretical at the present moment because they haven't actually built this spin parity meter, but uh, perhaps they can actually lead the way to an actual implement implementation of this idea. So it was very fascinating work published in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science and technology. This is KALX you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Charlie Emmerich and Jesse Porter joins us to talk about the Berkeley Science Review. So stay tuned. to the Berkeley Rock Science Show here on KALX 90.7 FM. Well, we're here today with uh, two very fascinating people from the Berkeley Science Review who are going to talk all about their amazing, amazing magazine, the Berkeley Science Review, that's here on campus. So would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Charlie Emmerich. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Berkeley Science Review, and this is... I'm Jess Porter, and I'm the managing editor of the Berkeley Science Review. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to have you both on the program. And uh, first of all, I guess for those of people who don't know about the Berkeley Science Review, I can't imagine that there are any. But no. <laughs> for those who don't, perhaps you could explain what the magazine is. Uh, the magazine is kind of a 
a way for us to try to communicate this, the great, amazing science that goes on here at Cal to non-scientists, non-specialists, and basically anybody that could be interested in science at Berkeley. We're written by graduate students, and really we kind of are aimed at graduate students at Cal, so not necessarily science graduate students, so we want to have non-technical snapshots of research that's done. All the research that we write about is done at Berkeley, and so we sort of, the original mission was kind of that people in their own field find out about research at conferences and talks and symposiums, but a lot of times grad students at Berkeley don't know what's happening in the lab next door if it's a little bit different. So it's sort of supposed to be a local forum for an exchange of science. Right. And, you know, generally for somebody that's scientifically interested, though not necessarily science. I mean, one of the problems that I think even us as scientists face, Jess and I are both part of the biophysics graduate group, is that reading a scientific paper even outside of your discipline is sometimes really, really difficult. You know, I subscribe to the scientific journals and I really can't get much past the titles in a lot of the a lot of the papers that I see. I can barely understand the ones in my own field. <laughs> yeah. Right. Amen. So, I mean, is it just graduate students that are in uh, science, or do you have other graduate students in other uh, disciplines? Well, initially, it was started with some journalism students, and at this point, we don't have any journalism students currently, but we're continuing to try to get people from the journalism school involved. As far as uh, who's involved right now, mostly we have science graduate students. Uh, We have a bunch of people from environmental science and Uh policy, management, and biophysics. Psychology. Um, We also have our writers are a bit more diverse, too, I'd say, than our editor staff. Well, we have uh, one science illustrator who's in a totally non-science, maybe public policy field. We try to get as diverse a group as we can, and I think right now it's sort of the fact that we know all scientists, so our efforts to get non-scientists aren't, haven't been really successful lately, but we want to get more We do have an English graduate student that wrote one of the pieces. Yeah. It's fantastic. We try to keep a focus on what's coming out right now and what's fresh and new at Cal and how Cal scientists are breaking ground. And then also we we also run uh, stories on the history of science, you know, scientific legacy of, of Cal and the surrounding community. Also pieces on the kind of the confluence of art and science where, you know, as they come together so often. <laughs> yeah, and one of our sources definitely is what are the papers that just came out in science and nature, and um, each of us in our field tries to read through a bit journals that are the best, most interesting research that's getting done right now. And we actually specifically try to get someone to write the piece who's not an expert in that field so that they can interpret it for non-experts. Right. But do you feel like uh, then being uh, science graduate students that you have a like being more down in the trenches view of actually what's going on right now and you have a sense of what's really hot? Insofar as grad students can actually have a sense of <laughs> something that's hot or cool. <laughs> So what have been some of the more interesting stories that uh, you've come across? Well, my favorite story in the issue that'll be the fall uh, 2005 issue is on plutonium experiments that were done at Berkeley in the mm. 50s. Wow. And so um, actually a graduate student that's in Charlie's lab is in chemistry department, Will Grover, and he wrote an article about a researcher at Berkeley who worked 
on studying the effects of plutonium on humans. And he did all of these experiments where he injected humans with uh-huh. radioactive plutonium, which at the time people thought, yes. well, I guess they his knew was, it was bad. His name was Joseph Hamilton. Yeah. And people had a, a, a decent idea that plutonium was bad and caused cancer and concentrated in really uh, sensitive parts of the body, like the bone marrow. But it really wasn't clear what radiation did to the body. And he was actually trying to use it as a cure for cancer. Mm. And at this time, nobody really knew what cancer did. Nobody knew what plutonium did. World War II was going on. I think most of the experiments actually took place in the 40s. And Mm. uh, yeah, it gave gave birth to uh, what we can think of now as informed consent Mm -hmm. for scientific and medical experiments on humans. Right. So they injected like two or three different people and some of them were didn't speak English as a first language or were underrepresented uh. minorities so it sort of had a lot of implications and I guess they sort of, they shut down his program about the time maybe a little after the Nuremberg trials because it became this thing where people were accusing these German scientists of not having informed consent and here there were scientists you know in the US doing uh. Not to say doing the same thing, but they weren't getting informed consent. So that's a pretty interesting one. He also got really interested in using plutonium as a radiological weapon. So at the same time, he was studying how could you weaponize it and distribute it, and might it be better in some senses than a, than, uh, a nuclear bomb. So I think that that was one of the articles that I thought was the most interesting in this issue. So are, are most of the articles in the uh, journal uh, feature articles, or do you have uh, a mix of different types of uh Article that you typically uh, oh we run everything from really short couple hundred word pieces which is about one paragraph mm-hmm. to uh, three or so thousand word features the one that Jess was just talking about mm-hmm. is a uh, really quite a long feature article lots mm-hmm. of lots of eerie pictures of people getting injected with plutonium and I sent her picture that stuff. <laughs> yeah fold out and uh, scratch and sniff too oh, perfect <laughs> if you ever wondered what plutonium smells like. <laughs> I'm sure it smells like chicken. <laughs> so have there been any stories that were deemed too sensitive or risque to be published? Not that I know of, to tell you the truth. We sometimes pare down quotes that might be seen as inflammatory, mm. but I think it's more just to keep an even tone to the magazine. So one of the things that we try to do uh, explicitly is to keep all of the stories at sort of an even tone and we have this sort of a council of editors there are seven of us right now and we all read the stories and we all work on them and so it helps the Berkeley Science Review become the polished final (laughs) beautiful product that it is. Well, I, I guess a lot of people now are just uh, curious, where can they go and uh, look and find the uh, Berkeley Science Review? Where can they take a, a gander at it? The Berkeley Science Review, when it comes out in the fall, should be available at libraries throughout the campus, lots mm-hmm. of cafes and things like that. Also in the basement of the ASUC building, Eshelman, mm-hmm. and that's where the ASUC Pub Center is. And also, the, all, the eva- all the issues are available for free online at sciencereview.berkeley.edu. So how about for people uh, off campus, do you also have a subscription to- to mail them out. That's something that we're working on. I mean, it, it was it was something we tried to get online for this issue, but um, being grad students, we actually have other things that we're supposed to be doing. And if my advisor's listening to this, <laughs> I, I only spend about five hours a week doing this magazine. <laughs> so yes, we're working on getting a subscription together and uh, take a look at the website every now and again. And once the subscription is available, it'll be a on the website and you should be able to pay through there and get it delivered to your house twice a year. So uh, I guess the question is, how did both of you become interested in uh, actually doing science journalism? Well, I've been interested um, almost since I started coming to grad school. Um, at the very beginning, I was asking professors when I interviewed, uh-huh. 
do people who leave your labs ever do anything other than stay in academia? Because it sort of seemed like a really big commitment to me, and I was really not sure I wanted to do it. And I remember our program advisor, Udi Isakoff, telling me right when I first interviewed, oh, I had a graduate student leave and go to this university uh, of California at Santa Cruz writing program. Mm -hmm. And so I had looked into that and right away I thought I was really interested in that. Mm -hmm. And we're actually, this issue, um, someone who's a a lecturer at that program emailed us and wants to submit articles from their program there to be published in our magazine. So we're going to try to have maybe more of a collaboration with them. And so I was interested kind of from that point. And then I heard about the Science Review was actually started in, I think, 2001 or 2000. And the the graduate student that sort of was the driving force behind starting it was in our program, biophysics. Mm. So I had heard about it from that side too. Okay. And then it took me like another year or so to actually make my way to finding them and right. looking into it. And I wrote an article first and then I was an editor for a few issues before I became the managing editor. Me? I have a bunch of friends that are in media in San Francisco and uh, they all seem to be cooler than I am. <laughs> so I thought that maybe going this route would make me a little bit more cool. And it has. Yeah. <laughs> You're pretty damn cool. So. <laughs> Both of you. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. So uh, has, the, has the journal received a lot of recognition? I mean, have there been awards for the... Uh... Yeah, we consistently have won the Best Graduate Publication Award every year since our inception from the ASUC. Oh. Best Design Award a couple years ago, and we won an award from uh, the Columbia Journalistic something or other. Yeah, the Columbia Press Association. But I could tell you a little bit about a few of the other projects sure. that we're involved in. So sure. our, a lot of our time is spent writing, editing, and publishing the magazine. Mm-hmm. But we have sort of some other projects that we are that we try to keep up with. And one is a seminar series. So we're sort of interested not just in us communicating the science that we write about in our magazine, but we're interested in sort of helping scientists at Berkeley learn more about how to communicate science or if people who are interested in science writing as a career option. So mm-hmm. I think for the past three years or so, we've had a seminar series where we try to have one seminar each semester, and we bring in someone who's usually pretty local from the either science writing or mostly science writers. But in theory, we would get anyone from kind of science communication. So we had Erica Clarich is a science writer. She's the math correspondent for Science News, and she lives in the Bay Area, and she actually went to the UC Santa Cruz writing program. Wow. So she gave a talk in March, and and we had a really big reception. It's funny. There's, I think, a lot of people on, on campus that are interested in this idea. A lot of people ask uh-huh. her questions about how much money do you make as a science writer? <laughs> Can you actually afford to support yourself? Yeah. How does depressing it work? Depressing answers. <laughs> yeah, really depressing answers. She said, yes, I can support myself because my husband has a job. But no, I mean, she actually spoke really positively about it. She was a professor at University of Minnesota mm-hmm. for a year or two before she decided that wasn't for her and she mm-hmm. wanted to go into science writing. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we have the seminar series, mm-hmm. we have our great website, and we also have an outreach pro- program that we're starting to starting to cook up. Hopefully we're going to be able to go with this uh, GK, GK-12 program into a couple classrooms and surrounding high, high schools and middle schools and help them with the science projects they're working on to be able to summarize it into a report in kind of a journalistic style so that they can work on their communication skills. Mm-hmm. 
and hopefully um, it results in a little pamphlet that we insert into our spring issue, spring or next fall issue, that is essentially uh, a newsletter of uh-huh. all of the science that uh, that these great kids are doing. Wow. Yeah, so awesome. it's a Berkeley program that was already set up, and they go to four local schools, and basically they go, there's two grad, there's four graduate students involved in it, uh-huh. and they actually get, uh, it's a whole program where that's their fellowship, so that's oh, wow. how their stipend is paid. Um, and they have a website, too, actually, that I wrote down, which is gk12calbio.edu. And so they mostly focus on like environmental kind of issues, which as when we looked into outreach, we are just sort of a general science publication. So we weren't necessarily looking for just an environmental kind of thing. But a lot of the outreach programs for high schools have this focus, I think, because that's a way to get to high school kids. They're interested in that aspect, maybe more so than they would be interested in meeting up for school to do physics problems or, you know, which I think would be interesting still. But um, you're a nerd. Right. And so they're so hopefully we're going to publish this newsletter for them. And also they take field trips. So we're hoping that we can set up something where if there are some of them who are interested in science writing, they can come partner up with some of the editors or writers and see their lab and talk to them about those kind of things. Wow. Sounds like there's a lot of really great projects you, you all are involved in. All right. Well, it looks like we are running slightly out of time. But I guess is there any, uh, I guess, last words you'd like to add about the uh, science review? And, uh, well, the science review, is, it's a... It's a great experience. It's a volunteer publication, so if you ever have any urge to do science writing or just uh-huh. to do science communication, uh-huh. by all means, if it needs to be editing or uh-huh. doing art or writing stories, mm-hmm. send it in. Okay. Yeah, and also just to look for our fall issue, and we publish every fall and spring, so if you notice the Berkeley Science Review, we're telling you right now that it's very cool and interesting, and if you want to learn about science that's going on at Berkeley, you should pick it up. It's the coolest magazine out there. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I guess we do want to thank our guests, uh, Charlie Emmerich and Jess Porter, for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks and telling us all about the Berkeley Science Review. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank, thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. This is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Stay tuned for the Grokotron 5000. Welcome back to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, we're back from the break, and our guests, Charlie Emmerich and Jess Porter, have graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, science literate or science illiterate? Bring it on. All right. (laughs) Ready. So are you ready to play a game, the Grokatron 5000? Oh, yeah. Okay, there are no prizes, and there are no losers. There's Here we go. No prizes. <laughs> All right, science literate or illiterate, person number one, Oprah Winfrey. I you know, have my to girlfriend say... watches her show almost every night, so I'm going to say science literate. I say science literate. To, to maintain okay. a happy And she household. helps people during Hurricane Katrina, so I count That's that. True. And she gave, uh, gave, she gave cars to She people. gave away cars, yeah. <laughs> and she does have a book club. This is true. Okay. I've seen some science books on that book club as well, I think. Really? Oh, yeah. all right then. All right, this one will be interesting. Science literate or illiterate? Donald Trump. 
No, in no way. <laughs> Definitely science illiterate. I wonder if he's literate or illiterate. Have you ever been to Atlantic City? Uh, I've heard things of De- life. Definitely science illiterate. Science illiterate. Okay. Number three, Carl Sagan. Science, science literate. literate. I, uh, that's it's almost like... Almost seems like a trick question. Yeah. Yeah. Although some people call him the butthole astronomer. <laughs> 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 the aristocrats. Uh, okay, moving on. Number four, science literate or illiterate, Janet Jackson. I don't have much Ooh. evidence on which to judge that. I would only be guessing. Probably illiterate, <laughs> I'd say. I think if it was literate, she'd be able to manage a mal- wardrobe malfunction. So. <laughs> All right, I guess we say illiterate All on right, that one. Illiterate on that one. All right, and finally, of course, science literate or illiterate, the president of the United States, George W. Bush. Yeah, that's not a difficult one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not really. So, sorry, George. Sorry, Illiterate. George. I think, you know, he sort of tries sometimes. Okay. But totally, totally science illiterate. Yeah, right. he gets an E for effort. <laughs> e for effort. And a T for nice try. Yeah, <laughs> but an F for actual performance. All right. All right, well, something to work on, George. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're here to help you. <laughs> Maybe we should send him to Berkeley yeah, Science, Science Review. Science review.berkeley.edu. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we do want to thank you very much, of course, for sticking around to play our game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, talking all about the Berkeley Science Review. Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right, there. And now it is time for me to nor eat babies. That's right. It's the weight of the earth, which has no so many people. But how much does it weigh? Well... According to the most recent estimates, 5.98 times 10 to the 24 kilograms. That's nearly 6 sextillion tons. Whoa! But that's not as much as I'm going to be after I eat some babies. Mm, And Yoda with this week's question of the week. Size matters not, but in America, supersize everything it is, including the telescopes. But the largest telescopes, where are they? Hmm. If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might see a little further. And that's all for this week's edition of the Berkeley Grox Science Radio Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Comets mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or umbrellas in their midst.